topic I want to share with you this morning is finding strength in our unity. I want to begin by saying that these days it's hard to escape the conclusion that we're living in a broken and fractured world. In a world that's marked by war, genocide, widespread abuse, injustice, and political hate mongering. A couple of weeks ago, my wife and I watched a very moving but disturbing film at the African Diaspora Film Festival called The Man Who Mends Women, The Wrath of Hippocrates. This film is about the heroic work of Dr. Denis Mukwege, a gynecologist who spent most of the last 20 years in the Democratic Republic of the Congo performing emergency surgeries on hundreds if not thousands of girls and women who have been seriously damaged psychologically and physically traumatized after being raped and often mutilated by roving rebel soldiers. The youngest of these victims were less than one year old, if you can believe that. The oldest were in their 80s or 90s. In helping these victims, Dr. Mujuegui has constantly been putting his own life in jeopardy and has narrowly avoided assassination on several occasions. And there's been absolutely no attempt by the Congolese authorities to bring the perpetrators to justice. Watching the stories of these atrocities was truly heartbreaking for me. I found myself thinking again and again, how can any human being engage in that kind of brutality toward another human being? It seems inconceivable. At the same time, I found myself thinking, what can I or any of us really do to affect this kind of brutality, which occurs so much, too much, in the world today. And it's brutality usually perpetrated by men, let's be clear about that. And it's motivated by the belief that those who violated, that those that were violated or killed were not one of us. They were less than human and therefore deserved the treatment that they received. Now we might be tempted to take some comfort in the thought that we don't see that kind of thing occurring in this country today. But is that really true? How about, uh, going back in time a little bit, how about the epidemic, well right now, the epidemic of unarmed black youth slaughtered by white police officers throughout this country? Something that's been going on for a long time but only really come into the public awareness largely through the, the technology of modern cell phones so that a lot of these things have been taped. Almost as disturbing as the actual acts of ethnic and racially motivated violence, I find, is the kind of hate-mongering that we see going on right now, dominating the news media in their coverage of the current presidential campaign. I must admit that at first, watching the debates among those running for the Republican presidential nomination seemed to me humorous and almost entertaining. It seemed too absurd to be taken seriously but it's become apparent that it's quite serious. The overwhelming tone dominating the proclamation of these candidates is one of hate mongering. Let's take all these wretched illegal immigrants in the country and ship them back where they came from because that's what they deserve. Let's prohibit Muslims from entering this country and close down mosques because we know that Muslims are all inherently bloodthirsty jihadists. Let's not invite any of the displaced immigrants fleeing military violence in the Middle East into our country because in Dr. Carson's words, they are probably mostly rapists and criminals anyway. 
The message in all these examples is clear. If we would just rid the world of all those whom we seem as other, not like us, we would solve the world's problems and make it a safer place for everyone. Now, I'm, I'm quite aware that those of us gathered here this morning know that there's probably no more destructive or distorted view of humanity than this, and I'm really preaching to the choir here. And yet we hear and see this view every time we turn on the news. You'd think that as a species we would have learned from history. The Germans were convinced they would make the world safer by exterminating the Jews. American settlers thought they were serving the common good by killing off most of the Native Americans. Haven't we learned anything from our history? We who are Buddhists would like to think, well, at least Buddhists are immune to this kind of scapegoat, hate-mongering. But even that isn't true because we read that the Buddhist leaders in Myanmar are placing Muslims in concentration camps where many of them are dying of malnutrition and untreated illness. The leaders there feel that a safe world can be inhabited only by Buddhists. But what's going on? Has the world gone mad? Sometimes I think it has. There's no simple answer to this question. Clearly a number of psychological and sociological uh, factors play a role in the hate mongering, the genocide, the abuse we see going on. On one level, I think we've learned that those who are insecure, who have low self-esteem, who themselves may have been victims of abuse, are much more likely to embrace ideologies that paint the world in black and white, us and them, good and evil. As I've said before in previous Dharma talks, but want to repeat a little bit this morning, I think the psychologist C.G. Jung got to the psychological core of this issue when he talked about what he called shadow projection. According to Jung, when we are unable to see or acknowledge our own shadow side, when we are fail to see that we all have within us the innate capability of manifesting all the qualities that we detest or see as evil in others, when we can't see that in ourselves, we will find a way to project it onto others. We'll find scapegoats, be they black, Native American, communist, Muslim. We will create an enemy under whom we can, we can then demonize and often, unfortunately, we'll convince ourselves that if we can destroy that enemy, then the world will be a safer and better place. All the while remaining oblivious to the fact that the evil we're projecting isn't coming from the enemy. It exists within ourselves. And the only way we can truly make the world safer and better is by owning, accepting, and taming our own inner shadow, our own dark side, the communist, the terrorist, the other that exists within me. Now, to me, this is a major reason why it's so important that as Buddhists, we place emphasis on self-awareness, the kind of awareness that comes through meditation and daily practice. Sometimes we may feel that the most that we can do is to, to address all that's going on in this world is to each take responsibility for ourselves, to maintain a good practice, to meditate, to spread good karma through compassion and respect for the earth and all who inhabit it. And certainly that is the most important single task that we each undertake. 
But I don't think that's the full story. And here's where I want to get into the core of what I wish to share this morning, which is the importance of finding strength in our collective unity. When you read the papers, watch the news, hear about all the abuse that occurs throughout the world, learn about the imminent danger of global warming, the plundering of the earth, listen to the hate-mongering of extremist religious groups and self-serving politicians, the result can be overwhelming. And we, I think, can often find ourselves thinking, this is too big, it's too much. What can I, this tiny grain in the sand of humanity, possibly do that would make any difference? That's how I was feeling a couple of weeks ago when I saw this film about Dr. McQuaid. In the light of such overwhelming evil, it is easy, even among those of good faith and relative enlightenment, to fall into despair and cynicism. And I think so long as we see ourselves acting alone, we're not likely to feel much encouragement. But we're not alone. And for me, that is the key. In the Hebrew book of Genesis, it says very early on, the man was not meant to be alone. I think there's great wisdom in those words. In New York City, we're obviously not alone, surrounded by a sea of people, though even here in the Big Apple, sometimes we can find ourselves isolated and not really connecting meaningfully to others around us. But social psychology has taught us a lot about the importance of our interconnectedness. It's amazing how much differently we may respond in groups than when we are alone. I would suggest that we are capable of much more good and evil when acting in groups than when we act alone. In groups, the whole is greater than the sum of its parts. Now, I think we all know this, that when we meditate together in this temple, aren't we aware that there is something in the air that's quite different from when we're meditating alone at home? There's a collective energy that is contagious and wonderful. By the same token, when marauding soldiers in the Congo start raping women and children, something takes over that probably would not occur if they were acting alone. The same is true of lynch mobs. You seldom hear about an individual lynching someone they hate. It's much more likely to occur in a mob that is in a mob, and that's the nature of group psychology. Now, of course, the more enlightened we are individually, the less likely we are to fall prey to destructive mob behavior. I think that's one of the reasons why our individual practice is so important. When we look at all the depressing things happening in the world, and right here in our own country, we often may lose sight of the fact that most people, I really think, believe this, most people are not driven by hate or prejudice. I'm convinced that a significant majority of Americans, and probably people of all cultures, want to see a world that is ruled by love and compassion rather than hatred and greed. But how do we get all these people together on the same page? How do we unify in our effort to make a dent toward removing the injustices that plague our world? And how do we then also appeal to the compassionate humanity in those who perpetrate acts of injustice and hatred rather than simply trying to destroy them, which is a temptation? I think one of the biggest obstacles to this kind of unity has been the very human tendency to see the worlds in terms of division. White, black, Hispanic, Asian. 
Christian, Muslim, Jew, Buddhist, Democrat, Republican, Independent, and the list goes on and on. Now obviously there are real differences among us that do separate us to some extent. For example, as a white person, I will never really understand what it's like to grow up black in America. That's a fact, and it's a painful one. But it does not have to be a barrier to finding unity with those of other races. I think the same is true of religious differences. Even those of us who believe in ecumenism, as I think most of us here do, in cooperation among those of different faiths, we tend to still keep a distance from those whose faith is different from our own. In spite of intuitively knowing better, we can still fall prey to, in lesser but significant ways, to seeing the world in terms of us and them. We Buddhists, those Christians, Jews, Muslims, whatever. Recently, I was fortunate to be on a committee that helped edit a translation of the teachings of Chong San from Korean into English. Now, some of you may not have heard of him, though actually a couple of weeks ago, Duyen quoted from his writings. Chang San was the second grandmaster of Wan Buddhism. He was born in 1900, and in 1943, when Sote San died, Chang San became grandmaster and remained so until his death in 1962. He was a man of wonderful insight. And in recently reading through his teachings, one of the things that most impressed me is his strong emphasis on the importance of the essential unity of all humanity. On the one hand, the unity of all Buddhists and those of other faiths, but even more basically, the unity of those of all racial, ethnic, and national groups. And I'd like to share with you some of what he said about this. This is a rather lengthy quote, but I think it's worth taking time with, and I hope you'll stick with me. And hearing it is helpful to know that this is a basic teaching of Wan Buddhism. Here are Chang San's words. The Master said, the first essential point of the ethics of threefold unity is the unity of the source of all principles. This means that all religions and churches should achieve a grand unity and harmony by understanding that their principles all derive fundamentally from a single source. In this world, there are the great global religions of Buddhism, Christianity, Judaism, and Islam, and many other established religions such as Confucianism, Taoism, and so forth. All these religions have established their own separate identities and engaged in propagation in accordance with their own beliefs and expedience. Their doctrines, too, are expressed in different terminology and forms. But if one closely examines their source, their fundamental principles, in fact, do not diverge from the faith and the truth of Irwan. Therefore, all religions, in their essence, are originally one. When all religious adherents in the world fully begin to harmonize with one another by awakening to this fact, all religious order orders will form a single household, accommodating and intermingling with one another. Hence, we must first fully understand and embody the spirit of the great way of Irwan, the foundation of all religions, and establish in our minds the great spirit that views all religions as one. Very wise words. Continuing, the master continued, the second essential point of the ethics of threefold unity 
is the interconnectedness through a single vital force. This means that by understanding that all humans and sentient beings are fellow living beings interconnected through this same vital force, we should all realize a grand unity and harmony. In this world, there are said to be four major races of human beings living in various areas. Within the same race, too, there are many nationalities, and within the same nationality, various clans who live in their respective areas. However, if one closely examines their source, their fundamental energies are all interconnected as a single vital force. In that realm where heaven and earth are one's parents and the universe one's home, all human beings are one's siblings. All human beings are one's siblings. Therefore, when all people under heaven awaken to this interconnectedness and attain grand harmony, all races and nationalities will form a single household and will be friendly and harmonious with one another. And the virtuous influence of that harmony will also reach all other sentient beings throughout the world. Hence, we first must realize the principle that all human beings and all sentient beings are essentially interconnected by this single vital force. And we should thereby establish within our own minds the great spirit that views all humans and sentient beings as one. Again, so simple and yet so profound. Just one more. Finally, the master said, now is a time when the whole world is becoming a single household. From here onward, any leader must pursue a universal ideology in order to achieve great success. Those who are involved in world affairs must have equal consideration for the people of every nation and must take on the responsibility for world peace over numerous lifetimes. What a wonderful vision this man had. It's not one that we can easily bring into human affairs and realize. But it's not as though Chong San is talking about pie in the sky. He's describing a reality that I think we all affirm as Buddhists, and we often lose sight of, that we are all part of the same vital force, the same essential reality. We are all brothers and sisters more than we usually realize. So wise psychologist Harry Stack Sullivan, one of my favorites, said on many occasions, we are all more human than otherwise. I love that. We are all more human than otherwise. What I think this means for us in these troubled times is that we need to find a way to identify and build on those things that unite us. As one Buddhists, we need to find ways to be more involved in interfaith initiatives. As individuals, we need to find ways to better connect with those of other nationalities, racial and ethnic backgrounds, even political philosophies, and that's a difficult one. Keeping as our touchstone the values that we see in the symbol of Irwan, the unity of all beings striving for compassion and self-awareness. This isn't easy. At times, it will mean finding others who can unite with us in taking stands against oppression or inequality, or standing up to those who promote hate-mongering, or to bullies or national bullies. It doubtless takes some creative thinking, discussion, and action 
to create effective organizations that can advocate for positive change. All of this takes hard work, careful thinking, and dedication. But the important point is that if we explore and discover in those who seem other to us, our common humanity, the common vital force that Chang Sen describes, it makes them our allies. Together, we can work toward positive change. And we'll almost certainly discover, to the extent that we achieve that, I think that we're much less alone than we think when we look at all the evil and horrible things happening in the world. We can discover there is greater strength in our unity if we can somehow make use of it and acknowledge it. Perhaps greater strength in that than we ever realize. I'll end with the last words that Chong San spoke on the day that he died. On January 24, 1962, just before dying, he said, with one truth in one world, as one family and one household, as one workforce in one workplace, let us build the world of your one. Thank you for letting me share that with you this morning.